please turn to Romans chapter 15, and we'll stay in that book pretty much all morning. Starting in verse 20, it says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So as we're looking at these two verses, we'll, we'll kind of zoom out in a little bit and see the bigger text that it falls into. But because it's two short verses, I really feel like we could skip right over it. It's just a few short words, and it's important. It's critical not only to Paul's message, but to the whole message of Romans. And these two, these two verses, one of them, uh, verse 21, is really just a reference to Isaiah. So he's quoting an Old Testament prophet. And he does that, as you'll read throughout Romans, he does it in every chapter. And every one of these Old Testament quotations from Obadiah, Amos, Micah, uh, I said, he, he, talk, he talks about just about every one of them, but Isaiah is his favorite. As he talks about what they said, he's revealing this gospel to the Gentiles, which is probably mostly everyone in here. And it's a, a gospel that's really new, good news to the believers in Rome. The believers in Rome were primarily Jewish. And there were, like many of the early churches, factions in, those, in that church between different types of Gentiles, so Greeks and Gentiles, they separated themselves out, and then Jews and Gentiles. And Paul wants to kind of get rid of this. He wants to address that. He wants to give them the gospel, which is the good news, but he also wants to tell them about his heart to take the gospel where it's never been before. And in doing that, he refers back to the Old Testament so that we can see this is not Paul's heart. It's not my heart, although we're asking God to make it our heart. It's God's heart. It's been his plan since before time began to have worship from every people, every tribe, every language, every nation. And I know I'm like preaching to the choir here because when I walk in, I see like a whole wall full of missionaries. And so I'm, I'm aware that this is like your heartbeat already. Um, so let this just be a reminder this morning as we're walking through this passage. And also, I want to make a bold claim to you this morning, as Paul does in this passage, that Paul is really talking about this concept called gospel privilege. It's, it's a fairly new, new concept, but it's also kind of semi-ancient. A friend started using it on, on Twitter, David Joannis, and I was like, man, this really articulates what's been stirring in my heart for a long time. And it turns out some Puritans used to use the term also. But today we need to unpack it a little bit because uh, social injustices and all that the gospel speaks to. Speaks to political situations, hatred, separation, all that sort of stuff. That's not this message this morning. So let's redefine gospel privilege by looking at the two words. First, the gospel. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul makes very clear that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, starts with the bad news of humanity. So we were all born into sin. And Paul tells us this by going to the garden in the beginning. He says that Jesus would someday be the second Adam. Adam brought sin into the world, and Jesus cleared sin from the world, or made it possible for us to be cleared from our sin. And in the garden, shame, fear, guilt all entered. Remember, they ran because they were ashamed they were naked, and they were afraid of the consequences from God because they knew they were guilty 
of disobeying the one thing that he said not to do. And because of this, we're born into sin. Paul lays that foundation, and then he goes on through the rest of five, six, all the rest of the chapters to talk about the history of his redemption through the people, the Israelites, through his people, through his chosen people. And he shows us again and again that it's not something that we earn. So he says, just because to the Jews, just because you're born to, to Abraham and you have this you know, ethnic lineage, that doesn't make you more special. In fact, you miss out if you don't accept the free gift of God. He shows how God chooses what we wouldn't always choose because he shows Abel being chosen over Cain. Then he shows again Isaac being chosen over Ishmael. And then again he shows, just in case you thought that's kind of unfair because Isaac was a promised one, he says, well, then I chose Jacob instead of Esau. And if you haven't got the picture yet, he's pointing to a free gift, something we cannot earn. And yet we stand accused. We stand guilty and condemned before God. Because when we go out in nature, we see the handiwork of God. We're forced in the, in the you know, dark hours of the night, we're forced to ask ourselves, what's the meaning of life? You know, when we bump up against adversity, we ask ourselves, you know, where am I headed? I'm lost. We ask ourselves these things because we know that there was a beginning. We know deep down, the Bible calls this the general revelation of God. And that's what Paul's really getting at. But then he says, we need a special revelation of Christ so that that relationship with God can be made right. And throughout the letter, Paul gives the bad news, but then the good news of Jesus, that it's something you could not earn, but it's freely given to you. And that's Jesus Christ. He came as the God-man, suffered, bled, died, as was foretold in the scriptures, was buried, resurrected, so that you could have eternal life. But it's not just eternal life, a new start. Life starts now. And in fact, the good news doesn't end there. It just keeps on working. The Bible tells us, it, right here in Romans, it tells us that Jesus is ascended and seated by the right hand of the Father, whispering our name, praying, interceding on our behalf. So like when we're not praying, when we don't have a heart for the lost, or when we don't have a heart for ourselves and know what we should desire, the Spirit groans for us. It actually, Jesus, Jesus makes intercession. And you can be accepted by Christ. You can be drawn into his family. Not only can you be rid of your shame, guilt, and fear, you get to have a relationship with the maker. And then you're called into his family. So the Bible calls that adoption. In Romans 8, the spirit comes in you and you're able to cry out, Abba, Father, which is really what an infant says, Dada. It's like the first word you're able to say. So if you haven't experienced that this morning, I encourage you, Listen to the Spirit as He stirs in your heart. Even if you've been in the church for decades, or if you've never, never really known the gospel, known who Jesus was, pay attention. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Bring yourself to God. Lay yourself at His feet. He says, Paul tells us right here that anyone who believes with their mouth and confesses with their, uh, believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that they'll be saved. And that's essentially all it takes because everything else is a work of the spirit so that's good news of the gospel and for shorthand we'll start calling that the good news of jesus or just the gospel the privilege part is tricky 
because it's been so used and misused. Privilege is actually a good thing. Now we hear about it and we think that it has all these negative connotations and it should be torn down. If you have privilege, if you're born into an unfair status, that's not good. That doesn't need to be the case. And again, we just want to kind of scoot that to the side and remember what privilege originally means. And it's like a blessing. So we were born with a blessing, most of us. If you were born in this state, you were born with a blessing to have access to the gospel. And not just the gospel in written form, the Bible, God's word, but audio recordings, TV, internet, radio, books, like lots of good gospel books back there. And most of all, believers. So God has given you access to other believers who can introduce you to Jesus. But there are people in the world who have no such access. So the way we'll be using privilege this morning is to look at the imbalance or the kind of an unfair situation again. Although it's a blessing for us, we have an indebtedness to do something with it. So gospel, privilege, we've broken them down. The good news of Jesus and being born into a situation with really an embarrassing amount of resources versus someone else who's born in a place where they'll never hear the name of Jesus as long as they live. So Hannah, Hannah's going to pass around a picture. And uh, I know this is kind of a heavy, heavy topic before we get into the text. But if you will, if you feel comfortable passing the phone without getting germs, there's a picture on here of a lady. I'm going to tell you a story. It's going to be my, ver- my story versus hers. And you tell me if you think I have gospel privilege because I feel like I'm a poster boy for gospel privilege. I was born in a large family, the youngest of six boys and two girls. And my parents prayed over me before I was born. And so before my little ears were formed in the womb, I was experiencing the love of Christ. I was hearing, in a way, as my ears were being formed, I was hearing the good news of Jesus. And I remember having heard this story, the story of Jesus, that we stood condemned and yet he wanted a relationship, so he did this for us. At, at four years old, I remember it coming alive in my heart and realizing that I wanted that relationship with God. And not only that, but God wanted the relationship with me. It wasn't just that my sins put him there on accident. He knew that would happen, and he still planned to do it. So take my story versus this lady that you've seen. Her name is, we'll call her Mama. And she's from a village in East Asia. You'll see the name down there at the bottom of the people group she belongs to. And if you would, just let her face, I know we kind of passed it quickly, but let her face kind of burn into your memory. She's about, she's a little over 90, I think 91 or 92. And when I first met her, it was October 2018. We went into her home and shared the gospel with her son and his mother tongue. We had an audio recording that we knew for sure was a, a good resource. We played that recording for him and for an hour, over an hour, he listened to the stories of Jesus from creation to Christ's return on this audio. And the NBA, oddly enough, is like blaring on this TV right here in the middle of nowhere, freezing cold up in, in these Himalayan hills and mountains. And he's, he's reading and listening and he's frozen, but he has to talk to his mama 
by grabbing her face and speaking right into her ear like this, <laughs> like we do our children sometimes, because she's 90. She can't really hear. And because she can't hear, uh, as the chaos of the TV's going and he's watching this gospel story or listening to it and he's talking to us and he's asking, uh, who is that? Who's Adam? Who's Noah? Who's Moses? Who's, who's Jesus? And, and listening to different parts and saying, that, that sounds familiar. As he's doing that, she walks into another room and, because, I mean, she simply can't hear anything. And he asks us to come back. He wants to hear more about Jesus. So in May, April or May of 2019, we went back to his house and asked where Mama was. And Mama had died. So in those few couple months, she died. And she was about here to that door from having heard the gospel of Jesus. So she never got a chance in her lifetime to respond to the good news of Jesus because she never heard it. That's a pretty heavy thing to, to deal with. And I hope it causes you to lose sleep like it, like it has me because that's the kind of thing that should mess us up. That's the kind of thing that's not all right with God. And he's got a plan, and the plan involves us. And the, the really bad thing is there's, that's mama, but there's about two, over two billion people who are just like mama, who aren't 90. They're all different ages. And just like mama, they had children that they loved, grandkids. She had great-grandkids guest to not remember that because we live on this side of the world and most of the unreached people groups live on the other side of the world but I'm going to ask us to remember it this morning and reflect on that quite a bit and you know as we jump into the text I want you to not just think about the the gap or the imbalance between our situation having so much gospel richness and their situation being deprived of the gospel having gospel poverty but I want you to think about what it is that Paul's arguing for that we should do. Because if we do have gospel privilege, if this is not just like some new story I invented or just some new thing Paul invented, but he's picking up on God's heart throughout the scriptures, then surely there's something to be done about it. So what are we to do with our gospel privilege? We'll look at that this morning. Let's back up to Romans 15, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 14. And I'm going to do a very preachery thing for you. <laughs> if you have a pen, you can just write down like a P because there's going to be a lot of points that begin with P throughout this passage. So it's going to be the primacy of proclamation. The, the first thing is that Jesus' good news has to be spoken, proclaimed to the nations and here at home. And then next you're going to see specific places mentioned. And not only specific places, but specific peoples. So yeah, priority of uh, proclamation, preaching. Uh, you got places and people, and then you have partnerships. So when we reach the end, we'll see how these partnerships work. It says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Remember, that's his message. Through, through all of the letter of Romans, he's introducing them to his message, because it's a little unique for them. They still are thinking in terms of uh, an ethnic people, that God has come for the Jews only. 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So not only is his preaching going to result in obedience, change lives. I mean, it's more than just a, a heart belief and a vocal profession. There has to be fruit that, that changes after that. Not only will his proclamation result in their obedience, but their word and deed. They'll be proclaiming the gospel now. And the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum, there's our places, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspire to preach, proclamation, the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so that's a people and a place he's referring to there, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place, for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, people, whenever I go to Spain, place, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I f have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, here's a bunch of places right here, serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia, which these are close to the churches of Philippi and Corinthians, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on, uh, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So that's people place, and partnership. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So I know that was a lot of reading, and I know I interjected a lot, but follow the logic here. This is not really an argument Paul set forth. He's really just telling the plans at the end of the letter. And it's, it's kind of neat. Romans is bookended with this idea that, hey, I'm going to Spain. And if you look in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, roundabout, he tells the reason why he writes the letter. He says, I want to write my gospel, make it clear to you, the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the, to the Gentiles as well, the good news of Jesus. But I also want to get you to help me in this work in Spain. I'm going to proclaim the gospel to barbarians. So the Romans at this time would make fun of those people west of them, and they called them barbarians. Barbarians has a negative connotation because it was a racial slur. It's an onomatopoeia. Y'all remember those from school? Like, ouch, bam, whatever. You know, the, those words that describe sounds, they have really no meaning. That's what barbarian really came from. They said that people sounded like they were saying bar, 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 because they couldn't speak their sophisticated language. And Paul says, as soon as the letter opens, you know, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle, I'm set apart to do this work, and I'm going to be coming to you, and we're going to mutually benefit from fellowship, but then I'm going to leave you, and I'm, I'm planning on you sending me 
to these peoples that have never heard the name of Jesus. These peoples that you've been really okay with ignoring. These people that you don't mind throwing a slur around about. And I'm, I'm sure we've never done that, right? Made fun of the way people sound, like people with broke, broken English. Or like maybe someone from a call center that actually speaks better English than we do, but we can't understand them. That's, that's the sort of thing Paul's getting at. He's confronting this stuff, but he's saying, look, there's two primary motive, motives here, the good news of Jesus and the spread of the good news of Jesus, the message and the mission. And Paul tells him that, and he comes back to close the letter, and he's saying, here's my, here's my plans. In chapter 16, the letter is kind of wrapped up. It's really a long list of people that he's already met, that he's already been blessed by and blessed and is sending to them or has already been there. And you'll see that Paul really doesn't know the whole rest of the church. There's a lot of people he lists. So he's, he's already invested in them, but there's a lot of people he hadn't met here, and yet he's saying, I need your help. You're a part of this too. This is not just my thing. He says he wrote very boldly. And it's kind of an audacious claim if you look at those places Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is really modern-day Croatia, it's a thousand miles, and they represent like the north, um, west, and the southeast border of that region. Paul's been all up and around there, and a lot of people have over years, you know, because they didn't really have Delta and American and United. They were using donkeys and such, and their feet. And as they're doing this, Paul sees that the gospel is spreading. And actually, he had no part in founding Rome, one of the few churches that he didn't have really a direct part of planting. So Paul's making this claim that in all this region, there's no work for him. Later on, he actually says, there's no room for me here. It's like, geez, dude, how much elbow room do you need? (laughs) You don't think there's lost people between here and like Denver? That's a thousand miles. That's a, about a thousand sixty-three from Downsville. You think there's some lost souls between here and there? People that don't know Jesus? There's a lot. There's a whole lot, and not just in Denver, all the way through through this region. There's a lot of people right here in Downsville who don't know Jesus, and who may have heard the good news but don't know him. So, what would your knee-jerk reaction be if I made a claim that there's no gospel work for me to do here? i got to get out of here and go to the unreach. Would your knee-jerk reaction be like, okay, come on, there's plenty of gospel work to do here. That's kind of what their knee-jerk reaction would have been, but that's why Paul tells them it's a very bold claim that he's making. And he's also referencing again this idea that there's other people who haven't even had a chance. If you back up to chapter 10, there's a, there's a portion in there where, again, I believe it's Isaiah who's quoting, and he says, how will they know if they're not preached to? The way that people get saved, essentially, the way they start a relationship with Jesus is if they hear the good news of Jesus. But if nobody's even going to do that, how are they going to hear and be saved? And now he's making it clear to them, well, this is how. So it's, this, this section is really the culmination of the whole letter. He's bringing all these points to a close here. Not only does he desire to preach uh, the name of Christ where it's not already named, but he expects them to do it with him. He says, let's see, down here in verse 28, 
I will go on by way of you to Spain. He's expecting them not only to partner with him in finances and prayer, but potentially with people, to send people with him. Everywhere he went, Paul picked up Barnabas, uh, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, Onesimus, Timothy, Titus. I mean, he had an apostolic band everywhere he went. When he was in prison, Onesimus found him in prison. So he had all, the, all these people he was constantly sending out and encouraging, hey, let's, let's continue to take this gospel where it's not been. So this partnership is really the answer to what we're to do about gospel privilege. If, if you agree that the Romans had gospel privilege and you agree that you have gospel privilege, what should be done? You partner. The big difference in the unreached, unreached people groups, there's like a percentage that goes with it, but it's really not that complicated of an idea. It really just means gospel deprived. It's any language group or people that will likely die, live and die their whole life without hearing the name of, of the gospel. And again, I've already said, and it's a big number to wrap your head around, but over 2 billion people like that in the world. I just think about 2 billion every time I say that. It just comes right off the tongue like it's just some number. And Jesus died for every one of those souls. Paul tells them, and I'm telling you, that the big difference in the unreached and you, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the unreached and the lost here, like this thousand mile radius, or you could really look at the whole state, the whole country, is you. You're the difference in the unreached because it's proclamation first. It's great to have all these gospel resources and stuff, but all those things point back to another believer. The bad thing about Mama is she didn't live next to Miss Renee or any one of you. She's deprived of a relationship with a Christ follower. And again, there's so many people in the world like that, but people here are not deprived of that unless you deprive them of that. You've been born with a privilege, uh, a lot of you, and really, you've been reborn with a privilege if you've been reborn. If you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have the true privilege. You have a gospel duty that comes with that privilege. <coughs> One author said, uh, what's that guy's name? Carl F. F. H. Henry. He said that the gospel isn't good news unless it gets there on time. And that's, that's the idea is you have to do word and deed, just like the Gentiles. You have to proclaim the gospel. The proclamation is first, but if you'll look, Paul takes this 2,000-mile detour. He says, I'm coming to you, and my ultimate goal is to get to Spain, but I'm going to take this 2,000-mile detour on foot. Like, this is not an easy thing, and he could have sent any one of those other guys as a courier to do this, but he wanted to put his seal of approval on it. Not, not as a, a thing of arrogance, but because he also loved the Gentiles, he, and he also loved the Jewish brothers and sisters. And he wanted them to know that his heart was big enough for both because God's heart is big enough for both. If your knee-jerk reaction is, there's plenty of work to do here, you're right, there is, and you're here to do it. It's you. But you also take part in this other frontier work. You have a wall back there that shows that you already take, take part in it. And be, before I close, I, I want to look not just at Paul's kind of the arguments or the doctrine that's going on there that and we could sum that up really by saying that 
the primacy of the proclamation of the gospel goes out to different people and places, specific places, through partnerships in the gospel. It's, really, it's pretty simple. People are sent out, and there are senders, and there are goers. And there are people, like, as they go, you're not just working vicariously through them, you're working with them, because prayer is the front lines of the work. And honestly, they can't get there without finances. But let's look at the story behind, behind Romans. But Paul is writing, probably at night, because we know this is the guy from Acts who preached so long, a guy fell asleep and fell out and died, fell out the window. And he, they prayed, and this guy was raised, and guess what his action, next action was? I'm not done preaching, let's keep. So we know if he's in Corinth, he's going to be preaching. And we know that in Corinth, from the letters there, that Paul tent, made tents. And he also was a leather worker. We just know that from history and a ton of other sources. So we know that as he's working all day, putting up tents, trying to live a, as an example among the Corinthians, he's probably staying up all night preaching. And his eyesight is pretty bad. Did y'all have those lanterns for Hurricane Laura? Like, or did y'all pretty much all have generators? But he, <laughs> he probably had lanterns or torches, right, at night. And he didn't have very good eyesight. You know, we know that from a number of different sources. So he's talking to Tertius, and he's pouring his guts out into this letter. And, and if you read this letter, it's got like all these complicated arguments and logic, but it also has these beautiful things that just sounds like song. Not only is he quoting all this Old Testament scripture, but he says stuff like, you know, what can separate us from God's love? Can tribulation or persecution or famine? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you find all these beautiful passages throughout there, and Paul's dictating this. Tertius is trying to, like, scribble it down, you know, in the dead of night, likely. And, you know, here's this guy's got stained hands from working with leather leather calluses ripping open from putting up the tents instead of taking it because he remember he's taking this big huge detour he sends phoebe on a, a lady on a 10 to 15 day trip to take this letter to the church in rome that's i mean that's a lot of trust and it's a lot of risk for phoebe she takes a letter there and paul really hardly acknowledges this but there's a lot of persecution going on in rome as they get the letter, they're likely meeting at night because they're being persecuted. Because the letter was wrote in 65, and we know that in 64, or 66, we know that in 64, Nero started persecuting not only the, the Jews, but the church, the Christian church. And one of the sick and twisted tactics that he used to do this, to intimidate, send a message to all the believers, was to take the bodies of the Christians and put them up as torches along the road so that they would be like a streetlight system. And Paul barely addresses this. In fact, in chapter 13, he talks about obeying the law of the land and thanking God for the good that they might could do, but living according to those laws. And it's not that Paul wants to dismiss their persecution. There's something more important. There's something at stake here. It's the gospel. The good news of Jesus is good for life here and good for eternal life. It's, it is a matter of life and death. And the spread of the gospel is equally important. You can't get the two 
to separate. They go hand in hand. So they get this letter. They're reading it at night. Just like Turks just was scribbling it down at night, they have these lanterns, but the, the light is actually their brothers and sisters in the faith. And some of them, it's their actual brothers and sisters, if you think about that. Like, we, we get some harassment in this country, and it's headed more and more that way. But think about that level of persecution. Uh, they get the letter, and they read it, and they're hearing, you know, Paul's kind of coming against some things that are uh, bad, <laughs> some, some tension, some conflicts. But he's, he's also telling them, hey, I've got this work to do, and you're part of it. You're going to be part of it. And then as he makes his way, he tells the gospel, the bad news, the good news of Jesus. And in chapter 13, so this is like the longest missionary support letter ever. Full, it's like a tome of theology. And then he gets down to the business of what's to be done. And he he says, in light of that, chapters 1 through, I'm sorry, chapter 12, chapters 1 through 11, in light of that, I beseech you, I urge you, brothers, to live as sacrifices, to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Because Jesus died once as a sacrifice for all. And Jesus, one night in a garden, was led with torches to his death. As he was betrayed by Judas, he went, and his hands were and calloused and all that too from working as a carpenter, but they were ripped up from nails and they were mangled. And I mean, even if it was his wrist, I mean, meat was coming out. It was a really, really sick, torturous thing that, that our Savior, our King did. No worldly king could do something like this. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter if they did. But this is the God of the universe taking on the shame and the sin of the world. And he did that, that once, that's one sacrifice for all mankind so that we could live as sacrifices. So that whatever our hands find to do, whether it's leading, whether it's if you work on, on a pipeline, if you work offshore, if you work at the chicken plant, it don't matter where. If you homeschool, it don't matter what you're doing, it's worship to God. Because there's word and deed being played out. There's obedience to the gospel. There's a changed life there. And if you've not experienced that, I want to invite you to experience that this morning. I also want to give you four, tip, uh, four starters, I guess, to start applying today. You know, what, what can I do about my gospel privilege? If what James says is true, and I'll investigate, I'll read the book of Romans this week. Today, I'll, I'll listen to it, because you can do that on your phone. You can just press play and listen. I'll listen to it and find out if what he's saying is true, if there's an imbalance. If I was really born in a circumstance that was favorable for me to come to know Christ and others are not. And you can look up stuff like the Joshua Project to find out about that, find out about these numbers. Then what can I do about it? Here's just a few tips. They may not be for you, but if they are, you know, you can grab something and write them down. First of all, pray. And just pray right now that God will open your eyes to lostness around you, to people that don't know Jesus. And then um, the first thing you can do is ask believers and non-believers at your work if they would be interested in starting a Bible study or a prayer group. This could be at work or away from work once a week. It doesn't matter. Just step out there. 
Number two is download the Unreach app of the day. This is an app that reminds you to pray. It gives you a people group each day. You can do that around your dinner table. And if you're looking at it now, it might be called, it might have Joshua Project in the title. But as you download that, you'll just be encouraged. It'll take you 19 years as of now to pray through every one of these people groups. Yeah, hopefully in a few years, we won't be saying that number 19 anymore. Number three, you can connect with a missionary. You've got a wall full of them back there, and I know one. And you take ownership of that relationship and let them know how you can support their ministry. Because they honestly, they don't know the gifts that you have or the networks or connections that, that you have. But if you reach out to them and you see, what, what can I do for you? Especially, I don't know those missionaries, but I'm assuming some of them are probably home right now because of COVID. Just reach out and say, how can we care for you? you know, maybe it's not finances. Maybe it's you come visit us or we send you to Darbone or somewhere to, to get a break. You know, Just dream, talk, talk to them, reach out to them. You'd be surprised how many of them feel alone. Number four would be invite a neighbor or someone who you're pretty sure doesn't know Jesus very well. Invite them to a dinner like Thanksgiving's coming up, or take them a dinner. This might be a neighbor of yours, might be someone you work with. You probably already have someone in mind right now you could do this with. And the cool thing is, if you get rejected, it really doesn't matter because you're going to eat the food. It's a win-win. And you've started a conversation and showed them that you care. And if you struggle to care, then that, this is an even better thing for you to do because God's going to use this time to work on you and work in your heart. And so those are the four, and I have a fifth one, and we'll call it a tip. And uh, you can actually tip well today, and that will help <laughs> spread the fame of Jesus. Because I, actually in a lot of restaurants, people try not to work on Sunday because church folks don't tip that well. And we, <laughs> we can change that. And we'll play a small part, but we can change that uh, even today. So those are just some practical things you can put into use to do work here and to partner with work there where Jesus has not been proclaimed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Help uh, anything that might, may have been said that would be unhelpful to be just immediately forgotten. Help uh, your children come alive in you. Help us to recognize our gospel privilege and the duty that comes along with it. Help us to see this great imbalance and know that you're going to fix it. That one day around the throne, your word says in Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, that there will be some from every family group, every language group, every tribe, every ethnicity around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy. And we get to play a part in that, God. We don't want to be left out. We want to jump in. And God, we want to jump in right here at home too. Help us to form better relationships and partnerships so that the proclamation of the gospel and relief to the poor, not just the gospel poor, but the needy, would, would go to specific places and peoples, especially where it has never been, but really all over the globe, God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for you. It's in your name we ask you to seal this fruit with your approval. In Jesus' name. Amen.